Well, it's good to be with you again this morning and thank you for the welcome that I've received today and uh, for the team here and the support that you've given me today. When I was first asked to speak about this topic of uh, individual responsibility in the gospel and challenges that we face in sharing the gospel, I sat down and I, uh, I thought about what are the things that get in the way of the gospel. You know, if a church like this decides or any church decides that it wants to be effective in reaching people for Christ, but that doesn't happen, where does the problem sit? Now, I think that it's, uh, it's easy to say, well, the problem is out there because the world has changed, because things have changed, because people's beliefs have changed, perhaps because we're in a more hostile environment, all of those kinds of things, and for us to look externally as to, to all of the reasons why that might be a problem for us. Uh, but I, I'm actually convinced that this is more to do with us than it is to do with the world. And that's why I started last week with the question of identity. Because when I think about responsibility, I think about something that you have to do, that someone compels you to do externally. But actually, if we understand our identity, then sharing the gospel, sharing the good news about Jesus Christ is something that we have an internal uh, motivation to do. And so that's why I, I pose those, that question. And I don't know whether you've had time to think about it during the week and indeed whether you've had time to discuss it. But I listed there that I thought the problem would be Christians not really seeing themselves as a witness and that's largely what we dealt with last week. Then other possibilities were lack of connections with non-believers, uh, previous bad experiences in sharing our faith, fears of rejection, not knowing how to relate to non-believing people, not knowing what to say, and not really believing that people are lost without Jesus. And then, of course, not making priority for sharing time with non-believers. And a couple of those I dealt with a little bit last week, but you'll see from a list of about eight things there that we could actually have eight messages, one on each of those things. So obviously we're really skating across these things but I hope that they'll provide for you things to think about, things to meditate on, and there'll be different points of these that are more relevant to you than others, I'm sure. It's interesting that we've just shared communion together. Um, I, I love taking communion, and I know that you know I've had the privilege of being here with three other people, and we've taken it together this morning. But I hope that wherever you were today, you sensed the Lord was with you, uh, you know, Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the midst of them. And you might say, well, I was, I was on my own, there was only me. No, that's not true, Jesus was there. So there are at least two of you there, and he was in the midst with you. So I pray that you really sense his presence with you today. Last year I had the privilege of visiting um, Turkey for a holiday. And part of that was to visit um, some of the biblical sites and cities that are mentioned in the New Testament. And so we went to the region of Cappadocia, which is in Turkey, one of the places mentioned in the book of Peter. And a great strong Christian community in those days in Cappadocia. And I went into, there are many underground churches because the, the buildings are largely built underground there because of the nature of the rock. And I went into this underground church and there was a picture of Jesus on the wall. I couldn't quite figure out whether it was meant to be the Last Supper or not, but certainly Jesus was sitting there having a meal and it was depicted that Jesus was at the end of the head of the table. So we had Jesus at the head of the table 
And coming from the table were all of the disciples down the table. So that's a picture on the wall. But what the church had then done is that they'd built another table. And they sat at the table. And that table flowed from the picture of Jesus. And there was no seat at the end of the table, only seats down the side. And what this spoke to me about was, you know, we're in a continuum of faith. It comes from Jesus and his disciples. It's come down to us through generation after generation because people have cared to share the gospel with us. And we have believed and we believe today and we have faith in God today. We have forgiveness. We know we're going to heaven. We have all of those things because it's been passed on to us. But, you know, there's that empty space at the end of the table. And it begs the question, who will sit at the table after me? This is part of the the challenge and responsibility of sharing the gospel. Now, I've called this being Jesus in the world because I think if we if we see ourselves this way, then witness becomes to us much less of a stress, but rather a normal part of our lives. But when we think about being Jesus in the world, it assumes relationship with people who don't know him. In Luke 15, there's a criticism of Jesus. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around him, that's Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now I'm talking about being with sinners and eating with them, having a relationship with people who don't know Jesus being a good thing. But here this was meant as a criticism of Jesus. They weren't commending him, they were condemning him for his behaviour. Basically saying, look, if you knew these people were, you wouldn't hang out with them. They're not part of God's kingdom at all. But one of the things that we know about Jesus is that he sent the signal to people that they did or could belong to the kingdom of God by welcoming them, welcoming them into his circle. And so the three parables that we have in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son are all about demonstrating for us what God's attitude is towards those who don't know him. God seeks after the lost. And Jesus is really saying, I'm doing what God wants. I'm doing God's work here by bringing the lost into the fold, as it were. Now, this idea of welcoming sinners and eating with them may be difficult for some Christian people. I know around the time that I became a Christian in the uh, the mid-1970s, we were kind of told to stay away from non-believing people. We were told to be separate from non-believing people. We might get somehow infected by their worldliness or something like that if we, if we hung around with them. And so church people tended to congregate in their own groups and not mix with unbelieving people. Or not mix in any meaningful way, shall I say. It's interesting that often one of the passages that they used to use is this one on the screen from 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul talks about separating yourselves from a Christian people who claim to be Christian but behave immorally. It was part of the discipline process of the church. And sadly, the church often in those days took this passage and applied it to anybody who was immoral, 
And so they said, well, you, you should stay away from people like that. But Paul actually makes the strong point here. Do you notice that? He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And the people he's talking about are people in the church. He says, not at all. Do you hear that? Not at all. Never. Meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. So Paul says, I'm not staying away from people who need to know Jesus, but there's a disciplined process in the church for people who are claiming to be Christian but acting against the Christian faith. Maybe you're brought up with that idea of um, you couldn't be with non-Christian people, but actually the Bible tells, the New Testament tells the reverse of that. You see, relationships really are the best context for showing people their value. It's within our relationships that we can understand what people's needs are and we can pray for them, that we can show the love of God to them, that we can care for them in practical ways and share with them the word of God. This is one reason why I asked for this passage from 1 Thessalonians 2 to be read today. In that passage, Paul talks about his behaviour amongst the people before they were Christians, remember, and once they became Christians. He talks about being amongst them like a child, like a nursing mother, and like a father. And there's, there's kind of a progression there. You know, if you think of the child, um, they're all together the same, right? If you think of the mother uh, giving birth, if you think of the father, father overseeing the growth, that kind of idea. But importantly, there's a verse in the middle where he says, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And to me, this is a very telling verse. Because sometimes when we think about sharing the gospel, we think about the words of the gospel. And of course, the words of the gospel must be shared. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10. But often what precedes that is a sharing of life. That it's in the context of sharing of life that we get the opportunity to share the words. Last year, I was in a cold supermarket, not far from where I live, and there was a hold-up in the line. I was only second in the line, but there was a line forming behind me. And I didn't understand what was going on, but I sort of, I was a bit oblivious, but I tuned in. And I realised that the man in front of me was sharing the gospel with the young lady at the counter. Now, I think the things that I heard him say were true. Uh, But, you know, the young lady at the counter was in a rush. She had a line of customers being built up. And in the end, as a fellow believer, I felt embarrassed by this man's behaviour. Not because he wasn't speaking the truth, but because he was doing it in the absence of any relationship and taking an opportunity or making an opportunity that may or may not have been there, I don't know. And I'm standing there sweating, thinking about, well, I do believe this stuff, but do I tell him to move on? What, what, what do I, how do I handle myself? So I just waited. And I saw eventually sort of the, he moved on and the young lady who was serving us looked rather stressed. And she was even more stressed when I said to her, hi there, I believe just like that man does. 
And I saw sort of the fear go up again. She's going to cop another barrage. I said, but I'm not going to hold you up today. And for me, that was enough witness just in that moment. But I suspected that man went away and felt good about himself, but he didn't leave somebody behind feeling good about the circumstance. And in a way, he was being quite rude to other customers as well. I grew up in a context where in my little town in Tasmania, there were two brethren churches. I don't know why they were divided. I have no idea. Um, I wasn't part of either. But they used to come, one of them used to come and preach three doors from my house on a Sunday night at all the cars. Well, when I say all the cars, it was Tasmania, right? There weren't really many cars. And I, some, I know some of you watching today know that town because you came from the same town as me. But they used to preach at the cars as they go by. Even as a boy, I thought, nobody's listening to those people. What's going on? So for me, relationships are the key. And I'm one of those people who was one to Jesus Christ because of relationship with somebody. It wasn't the person didn't lead me through the prayer. They weren't at the end point, as it were. But they were the key to me coming to Christ, relationship. So if we're going to have relationships with people, we need to be intentional about that. Last week I referred to the story of the woman at the well. And in that passage, you read that it says that Jesus had to go through Sychar. Now the truth is that he didn't have to go through Sychar. There was an alternative way, a longer way, and Jews generally would take that longer way so as to avoid interacting with Samaritans. So my question is, why did Jesus have to go through Sychar? And I think Jesus had to go through Sychar because he had a divine appointment with that woman that he's going to keep. You see, there's an intentionality about the way that Jesus carried about his life and did his ministry that came from who he was. And his meeting with that woman was part of that. You know, I've discovered that in my life that bad things come easily. Bad things I do readily. Bad things take no intentionality for me at all. Good things, on the other hand, I need to be intentional about. When we moved to Victoria, way back in 1991, and then a year later our girls went into a Christian school and I was working in the church, we realised that all of our life was going to be Christian-centred. And so as a couple, and consequently as a family, we made it our business to have friends who are not part of the church. To love them, to pray for them, to care for them, to share with them. Hopefully to see some of them come to know Jesus. But we made that an intentional part of our lives. I want you to know that some of those people are still my friends today, even though we've moved away. And I'm not sure... I've just been thinking, just thinking about that. There may have been one or two of them who came to Christ. Most did not. But some of those people have been my best friends in some of my darkest times. Interesting, isn't it? How God uses those things. Now in the context of our relationships, 
When we're with people, we need to remain alert and to listen for understanding. One of the problems, I think, is the fact that because we know the gospel and we have something to share, is that we want to get it out. We want to say it. You know, Jesus is the answer. I've got the answers, right? So I want to say them. But you know, James says in James chapter 1 and verse 19, that everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And he goes on about uh, how not listening can give rise to anger and misunderstanding and those things. But certainly when we don't listen to people, we're not giving time to understand what they think, what they believe, what their needs are, how we can communicate well with them. If I don't listen in any relationship that I'm in, even in my family, if I don't listen, I'm likely to get into trouble because I will answer questions they don't have. I'll respond to things that they have not said. You know, in Proverbs 18 verse 13, it tells us that it's foolish to answer before listening. Now, I have to tell you, I don't find this easy because I've got a lot to say. I've got important things to say. I want my opinion to be heard. And for me to listen is actually quite a discipline. You know, if you think about it, we often, when we communicate with people, we, aren't, we often don't communicate in a way that shows we're listening. Often what happens in a conversation, somebody talks along, they say something, you think, oh, I've got the answer for that. And so what you're doing is you're kind of, you're waiting for the next breath in the conversation so that you can get your word, your answer in. But that's not really listening. That's just listening for an opportunity to speak. Here we're talking about listening so we understand where, where another is coming from and where their needs are and where their beliefs sit and all of that kind of thing. You know, a good teaching principle is you work from where people are. You begin with what they know. You begin with what they understand. You begin with what their attitudes are. The same is true in relationships. So if we don't listen to what people are saying, how can we begin where they are? And then once we've listened, I think it's really important that we build on prior conversations. What do I mean by that? You know, if if I come to this church building today, as I have done, and one of the people says to me, you know, my, my child was really sick this morning. And then I come back in two weeks' time, as God willing, I'm going to, for the mission Sunday. And that same person's here. And I say, oh, how you've been the last couple of weeks since I saw you? And don't mention what they told me. That communicates to that person that I've not really listened to them. That I've not thought about them since we were last together. But if I say to them, how's your child? Immediately they know that that's been on my mind, that they've been on their mind, that that conversation has been on my mind. I sometimes have thought over the years that in church it's like, I'm going to generalise, please, this is not true of everybody when I say this. I don't know what it's like here, I can only talk about the spaces where I've been long, but in church sometimes it's like we have collective amnesia where we turn up at church on a Sunday and we say, how's your week? We talk to the same people we talked to last week and we say, how's your week been? 
Now, there's nothing wrong with that question. Except that if we've talked with those people the previous week, they've told us already something that they were facing this week. So it's like every every Sunday we have a new conversation with the same people. So if we don't practice good conversation in the church, in following through our conversations, how are we going to do that with other people? This is a very important people skill to build on your previous conversations. And then in the context of those conversations, to express, to, to respond to needs that people express appropriately. So when somebody tells us something and it's difficult for them, they're going through some difficulty or challenge, the really appropriate question is not I've got the answer, but how can I help? What can I, what can I do to assist your situation? Now that might be that there's something practical that we need to do. You know, when Jesus talked about loving our neighbour as ourselves, he meant that in a practical way. So if my neighbour is in physical need and I can do something about it, as a response I should do that. But asking how can I help gives them the opportunity to articulate that. Because sometimes we may want to offer help that's not required or not wanted. Or there are other sources. So it's very appropriate to ask people, is there something I can do about that? Is there something you would like me to do about that? So there'll be a mixture of acts and sometimes words. You know, sometimes all people want is a listening ear. Sometimes they want to hear something from you that will help. Sometimes they want some advice. Sometimes they want some of your experience. But if you don't ask the question... You don't know what is required. Asking the question, how can I help, means that you're not making assumptions about what they're saying to you. And then to ask people, whatever they say, can I pray for you? Now, I don't know, over the years I've been very guilty of this, of saying to somebody in church or elsewhere, I'll pray for you. And then I go away and I forget about it. don't know whether you've ever done that. But I've been very guilty of that at times. And I've, I've learned whether it's in church, after church on a Sunday when I'm talking to somebody who's in the church or whether I'm talking to somebody out of the church just to say to them, can I pray for you? And a lot of people will say yes. But then, then you say, can I pray for you now? I get mixed reactions to that. Some people are comfortable with that. Some people are not comfortable with that. I've had people say to me, oh, yes, please, but they're not believers at all. But they know that prayer is important for you. I had somebody say to me the other day, somebody that I see quite regularly who's not a Christian person, uh, when they're going, I said, oh, look, you know, I'll pray for you in that and God bless you with that. And I said to them, oh, I guess that's not so important for you. And they said, oh, yeah, but I know that's who... That is part of who you are. So that's what I'd expect from you. I thought that was most fascinating. Most fascinating. So even though it's not part of their belief, it's what they're expecting of me. You know, when you pray for somebody, that can be part of the beginning of a discipling process. If you pray with them, you're teaching them about prayer. Do you get that? If you pray with them and and God answers their 
their, the prayer that you pray, that gives them confidence in God. Lots of good things can happen uh, through that process, not just the prayer itself. So asking people, can you pray for them, I think is a really important thing to do. But of course, there's the issue of sharing your experience when it comes down to words. Here's an opportunity for you to say to people, well, you know, I had that same issue and this is what God did for me. This applies to the good things and the bad things. You know, as Christians, sometimes we feel like we have to tell the winning story. It always used to intrigue me as a young Christian that we would, that the church seemed to find the people with the worst stories they could find, who could spend, you know, sort of 15 minutes telling their bad story, then a couple of minutes about how they got converted and a couple of minutes what it means for them now. And it seemed to me that we needed, we, we could only, we wanted to hear the bad story, but it really had to make sure that it was rounded off with a good story. You know, it's a bit like the fairy tale story, happily ever after. We like to hear happily ever after stories. But one of the things that I've discovered is that non, uh, non-Christian people want to know whether this works for you even when you're going through your hard story. I was really struck by this about 10 years ago. Uh, we had something terrible that had happened in our family. Uh, it came to light. I was really struggling with it. And my neighbour with whom I had this kind of relationship um, could see that I was struggling and he said, what's going on? And I told him in general terms what was going on. And his question to me was, how is your faith helping you with that? Wow, was I on the back foot for a minute as I I thought about that and tried to respond to him uh, truthfully about that. But you see, people want to know not only that you, you came through something, but whether it works in your most difficult times. And that's part of sharing your experience. In that context, I think we have to be careful of a, a smart, simple answer kind of approach. Um, the world doesn't want, people don't want platitudes. The truth is that for some things, there are no answers that we can see. We don't understand everything. We don't know everything. And people will come up with issues and complexities and difficulties for which we don't have answers. And I've never been ashamed to say, I don't know the answer to that. I've thought about that a lot myself. But my faith is still here. People see through a smart answer uh, very readily. The other thing is that, you know, last week I talked about how uh, the growth of the kingdom is God's business. Sometimes we feel like we have to convert the person. Now, it's a joy to lead somebody to Jesus. It's a joy to be with them in that moment. But they need to come to Jesus in their time. I remember as a young Christian, we were skilled, uh, skilled if that's the right word, we were taught evangelism techniques. And it was kind of almost like if you take a person through this point and they say yes, you take them on to the next point, they say yes, 
yes, yes. And by the time you've got a series of yeses, it's impossible for them to do anything else except give their lives to Jesus Christ. It's kind of like a sales technique, really. And I've, I had some converts at that time who really didn't become Christians at all. I felt good about myself. You know, I tick, I did that. But really, when I look back, it was quite manipulative in its own way. Our job is to communicate, not to manipulate. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't make good argument and those kinds of things. I'm not suggesting that for a minute. But it's not my job to manipulate somebody so that they believe in Jesus Christ. My job is to communicate the love of God through Jesus Christ in what I do and what I say and let God do what he will do with that. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't ask somebody would they like to believe in Jesus right now. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't do that. But it does mean that it's not my job to get them over the line and to take personal responsibility for that. In that context, I think that really our own story is our best ally. One of the issues that people have is, well, I, I, I don't know how to answer the question, why does God allow good people to suffer? You know, why are there big storms that decimate millions of people if, if God is, is a God of love and God is in control? Couldn't he stop that? All those kind of things that people ask you. What about the origins of the universe? It was just chance, wasn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's evolution, isn't it? Uh, there's no real God, is there? Those kinds of things. I think in that context, our story is really our best ally. You know, when the man was challenged about Jesus, he said to them, effectively, I don't understand theology, but I do understand that I could not see, but now I can. Now, whatever they thought about his opinion, whatever they thought about his theology, they could not take his story away from him. You know, it's interesting, even in the story in John chapter 4, with the Samaritan woman, she tries to engage Jesus in a theological discussion about where worship should take place. And Jesus refused to be um, sidetracked by theological discussion. He said, you know, woman, a time's coming when people aren't going to worship there or there because God's looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's very, my experience is that it's very easy to get sidetracked in argument and I've had too many of them over the years. And I've never had an argument with anyone who's changed their mind as a result of argument. I remember meeting with a man one night in a McDonald's store. We arrived at 8 o'clock in the evening and we left around about 12.30 in the morning and we saw the various cohorts of uh, people coming and going. And he wanted to, he told me he wanted the gospel explained to him. His wife had been coming regularly to our church. And I think I gave him, as much as I've ever given anybody, the A to Z of the Bible and the Gospel. And all the way through, yes, it's making sense for him. Yes, it's making sense for him. 
And really, I honestly thought that at the end of this conversation that he was going to give his life to Jesus. But, you know, giving your life to Jesus requires a step of faith. And I would say that at an intellectual level, he was probably, let's say, 95% convinced. But that left for him a 5% leap of faith. And he wasn't willing to make that leap. Now, I subsequently found later on that there were other issues in his life that really were preventing him that had nothing to do about argument and opinion at all, but more to do with who he was as a person and what he might need to give up had he believed in Jesus Christ. But my point here is that no amount of argument will win somebody. Your story is your best ally and people cannot take your story away from you. Not only your story of conversion, but your story about how God is helping you in the presence. These have been difficult days for us all with the COVID-19 restrictions. It's made it extra hard for a relationship. Some of you who've been able to go to workplaces will still have maintained those relationships with people. And that's great. Others will have had to resort to Zoom meetings and texts and telephone calls. But one thing I know is this, that as we come out of COVID-19 restrictions, our relationships are going to reflect what we've invested in them during that time. And what they will be in the future will reflect what we do with them now. So as we're Jesus in the world, may we be intentional in our relationships. May we love people. May we care for them. May we pray for them. May we share with them acts and and words. One of the things that I I used to enjoy at uh, at Warrandyke Community Church when we had a few staff was every morning we used to pray, God, would you help us to be Jesus in the world to people today? And to see every person that comes our way as an opportunity to be Jesus to those people. It's good to do that with a group of people every day. I used to enjoy that. But we can still do that on our own. So we pray and go about our day, Lord, help me to be you to whoever I meet today. So Montmorency Community Church, may God bless you. May God fill you and equip you as you seek to be Jesus in the world that he's placed you in. And may God grow his kingdom as you are Jesus in the world and in all of your relationships. You know, that's the kind of person that Jesus was in his world. And now, you and I are the body of Christ in the world. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the treasure of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ who came and lived and died, who showed us who God is and told us how we could know the living God and who gave his life so that we could be his children. Thank you, that, Lord Jesus, that you've not left us on our own in the world, but you've given us your Holy Spirit, who's with us every day, 
yes, to transform and change and equip and help and comfort us and all of those things, but also to help us to be Jesus in the world that you've called us to. We pray, Lord, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear all of the people around us and to be intentional in our relationship with them, that we may listen to them, that we may earn the opportunity to love them, to care for them, to pray for them, to share with them, in doing acts of kindness and in speaking the words of the gospel and particularly in the sharing of our story. Thank you, Lord, that we have a story with you, a story that no one can take away from us, a story that people may not like, a story that people may not want to listen to, but it's our story. It's our experience of you. And we pray that in the sharing of that story, that there will be those who could say, that could be my story too. And that you would use us, Lord, as part of your great chain in the sharing of faith so that others beyond us may come to know him in whom is life eternal. We pray that as COVID restrictions ease, that you would protect everyone and care for everyone, but also, Lord, that we will we'll trust you in our relationships and that we'll look to you to be at work in building those relationships for the sake of the kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.